And the to-do list is everything that you need to get done tomorrow. And the to-worry list is all the crap you don't have any control over, but you're still going to worry about it. And you know you're going to worry about it. So you don't want to rob yourself the opportunity to worry. And so you make yourself a pact that, hey, here's my list of everything that's concerning to me. The best I'm ever going to be at handling everything on that list is after I've had a good night's sleep. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutritionist, and I'm the host on this podcast. And I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself. And on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, where we look at food, lifestyle, the the air we breathe, the thoughts we think, and the food that we consume as biological information that turns on our genetic expression. We know that you have control over your genetic destiny. And so today I've got a great guest. This is Dr. Parsley, and he is a sleep expert. He's a really unique individual because he is a former Navy SEAL and also a medical doctor, and he's been a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine since 2006. He served as Naval Special Warfare's expert on sleep medicine. In addition, he's certified in hormonal modulation, which is age management medicine, And after leaving the Navy, he went into concierge medicine and consulting. He continues to consult for multiple corporations and professional athletes and teams. Dr. Parsley lectures worldwide on sleep, wellness, and hormonal optimization. And he's currently completing a book on sleep and health optimization. And, you know, I'm really interested to read that book because sleep is such an important component to good health. And I'm excited about this interview. Dr. Parsley, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I don't know who sent you that bio, but the book's been out for a year. So. Oh, has it? <laughs> but well, that's cool. Okay. I got I to gotta see that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's uh, called Sleep to Win. You can get it on Amazon. Sleep um, to Win, guys. Yeah. And we'll have a link to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about your story. You know, Navy SEAL. Yeah. What inspired you to become a Navy SEAL? That's obviously uh, the elite of the elite. And yeah. so uh, what was the driving force there? Well, I mean... <sighs> You know, actually, like I would, I you know, I grew up in a very, um, I don't know, in, in sort of a rural redneck kind of mind, you know, town and mindset. Um, and I really didn't care about school. I cared, you know, I, I just never had any interest in academia. Um, I, I was a terrible student, but I was a pretty good athlete. Um, and I liked, you know, I liked to work out and I liked to, you know, do athletic things and crazy risk-taking things that teenage boys do. Um, and, uh, you know, I liked competing in sports, uh, but I mean, I was just, I was a terrible student. I had a, had a really unstable home life. And so, uh, yeah, it was just really bad. I mean, after four years of high school, I was, by credits, I was a sophomore with a 1.3 GPA and I was like, time to punch out, you know, um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, just kind of, you know, my family and community values is, you know, you, you go, you put your time in the military, you support your country. Mm-hmm. Like, and so um, I really, it was, I mean, it was a matter of months before I joined the military that, 
this documentary came out on Navy SEALs. Nobody knew what Navy SEALs were, right? This is, uh, we're talking 1988, um, or it's actually 87 now, um, when I, when I signed up and, uh, it, it was this documentary, like 60 minutes, but it's called 48 hours, but same kind of, you know, journalism, documentary journalism show. And, uh, they covered hell week for the SEAL training and talked about how this is the toughest training in the world. I'm like, well, I'm going to go do the toughest training in the world. Right. Um, and you know, I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't think through it. I mean, I was young and I like, I didn't, I didn't think about my future. I just thought about, you know, that like this, that's the next step. Um, I honestly, and this was uh, a great source of comedy for a lot of my instructors. I honestly didn't know that I was going to get paid to be in the military. I just thought, you know, they're going to train me. They're going to give me clothes. They're going to be place to sleep. They're going to feed me. What, like, what do I need money for? Um, and I never thought about, oh, you know, you'll get married and you'll have kids and you'll have your own family. And you'll, oh, and like that never occurred to me. Like, I just thought of like the movie version of military. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I obviously I made it through SEAL training. I became a SEAL, um, started dating a girl uh, who was getting her master's in physical therapy. And, you know, I was a SEAL during the Clinton administration. So it's not, mm -hmm. you know, it's not fair to put me on par with the guys who are over there in combat right now. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, we just did a lot of training and like, you know, deployed and did like a little limited police action stuff, you know? Um, and you know, just kind of felt like, you know, it was, it was pretty redundant. It was the same stuff over and over again, you know, for whatever reason, I thought America's never going to be in another war. I'm going to go do something else. Um, and so I thought I might, uh, as, as dating this girl who's getting her master's in physical therapy, I thought I might want to do that. Uh, cause I was, you know, I've always been interested in health and nutrition and, um, you know, primarily to make myself a better athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I thought, yeah, that'd be, that'd be good for me. And so I, I uh, started volunteering at San Diego Sports Medicine Center, which, uh, you know, to just to apply to PT school, you have to have 2,000 volunteer hours. And so I figured I better get started. And so I, I did that. I started volunteering, and then they hired me after I'd been there a few weeks to be a, an aide. And so that's where I worked all during college. And I pretty quickly decided I didn't want to be a, a physical therapist. It was just a little too limited for me. And, uh, but San Diego sports medicine center was this tremendous Mecca. I mean, we had every kind of healthcare provider you could possibly imagine working under one roof really. Um, and so I got to, you know, I got to work with everybody. I got to work with massage therapists and strength and conditioning coaches and chiropractors and, you know, MDs and DOs and surgeons and sport med guys and PTs and like, you name it. Like we had, we even had an orthodontist. I mean, so I, I just got to look at everything and, uh, you know, and the doctors that the doctors that I worked with, uh, you know, I just really seemed to get along with them. Well, I seemed I was really interested in their job. I didn't think I could be a doctor, but they, you know, they talked me into throwing my backpack over the wall, and um, so I applied and got in. Obviously, uh, I but when I was applying, I you know, and I was going through the Kaplan books. This is pre-internet. I'm going through the Kaplan book to figure out what schools I'm competitive for with my GPA and MCAT and all that other stuff. And that's when I learned that the military had its own medical school. And uh, I didn't really have any craving to be back in the military, but I was already married. I already had a kid and they were going to pay me to go to medical school instead of the other way around. And so right. I could support my family while I went to medical school. 
and that's an eight year payback. And I just knew I'd get back to the SEAL teams as their doctor. And I didn't. Uh, and so is a fair exchange for me. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, pay me to go to medical school for four years. I'll give you eight, my first eight years as a doctor. And, uh, I got out in 2013, um, you know, with, I, I feel like a pretty good exchange, you know, we, a win-win for both of us. And, uh, and there you have it. There's, there's the story. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And definitely an interesting journey. And I'm, I'm sure you saw a lot, even just being a doctor for the, for the SEALs. Um, were you specialized in emergency medicine or what were you doing? No. So, um, I started, uh, or I was, I was planning on being an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. Uh, and the way the military works is, uh, you do your first year of, of residency internship year, you do your internship year, and then they send you out to the fleet to be a doctor, mm-hmm. like a general practitioner, essentially. Yeah. And then you come back and finish. Uh, and that way they can have general practitioners because otherwise everybody would just you know, go right. through specialties and they'd have a shortage of doctors. And so you can, you can avoid just being a GP in a clinic or on a ship by becoming a flight surgeon or becoming a diving medicine, diving medical officer, they're called, or undersea medical officer. Excuse me, I don't want to ruffle feathers. Hmm. Um, and the, you go through a residency in hyperbarics and and, yeah. and undersea medicine. So you learn a lot of radiation for submarines and um, you know diving injuries and all that other stuff. And uh, and then you go out and then you can go out and be a doctor for something like you know submarine fleet or special forces or divers. Uh, actually, my first job after uh, my DMO residency was uh, the submarine rescue unit where, hmm. you know, we have like a little pod that we go down and lock on a submarine and pull people off. And um, so, yeah, that, and then I just decided to never go back because I, when I got to the SEAL teams, um, you know, I fully expected to do a lot of orthopedic stuff and sports medicine. Cause that's, you know, from my memory of the SEAL teams, that's the kind of stuff people were suffering from. Um, and I got there at this great time. They had just funded this initiative that had been, you know, been put forth for like the first 10 years. Uh, I had been put forth for like 10 years and they'd finally got the funding to build their own sports medicine facility within the, within the SEAL team compound, which we never had before. Um, and so, you know, we hired our first strength and conditioning coach and our first nutritionist and our, you know, our first physical therapist and our first like everything and built this really great uh, rehab facility. And then of course I was the dumbest guy there. I was, you know, I had the least amount of training there by the time we got all these, you know, ortho rounds and pain rounds and everybody to come through and acupuncture and Cairo and like everything. Um, And so, you know, the military's fashion, they then say, well, we're going to put you in charge of all that, that, you know, you're, you're, (laughs) you'll manage it. So, so I was managing that facility um in my you know my office was actually in the rehab facility so people would be getting rehab and they'd say hey man i want to talk to you and they'd come in my office and they'd tell me their true their true struggle and seals are a lot like uh professional athletes and that about the worst thing you can do to them is put them on the bench right disqualify mm-hmm. them say you can't do your job um so they you know, they just frankly lie when they go see medical providers, mm-hmm. like, how's everything? Everything's great. Like, no, no problems, whatever. And you're like, Hey, is that a bullet hole? I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> is it like I've poked myself a screwdriver? Yeah. Um, you know, and they, like, they just, like, they won't cop to anything. Uh, but because I had been a seal, 
uh, and I had been a SEAL recently enough to where there were a lot of SEALs there that I'd been a SEAL with, um, and I had a good reputation as a SEAL. Um, they trusted me, and they came in my office, and they're like, hey, man, let me tell you what's really going on. You know, and, and you know, just simplify uh, saying a lot, but they essentially presented like they had metabolic syndrome, right? right. Um, hmm. Even if they were young and had six-pack abs and, you know, um, and they, they had a lot of cognitive difficulties and motivational concentration, emotional, like everything, like their lives were just upended. Like they, they mm. nobody had disease. They just weren't yeah. performing yeah. the way they wanted to perform. They weren't performing to their level of expectations. And that's what I work with now. Like, I mean, I, I still do a lot of philanthropic work with the, with SEALs and special forces and former people, but like all my, all my population now, you know, they're CEOs and they're athletes and they're whatever, but you know, they, they don't have disease, you know, or if they do, it's like something easily managed, you know, um, like they might have high blood pressure or something, but you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're healthy, athletic, fit people that are conscientious yeah. and they want to perform better. Um, and so when the SEALs would come and tell me this full story, to be honest, like, you know, I was a Western trained medical doctor. I didn't know, like they didn't have any diseases. Like yeah. everything I knew was about how to diagnose and treat a disease and they didn't have a single disease. I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, so I had to learn a lot about, um, you know, sort of non-traditional stuff. And that got me thinking about, you know, sort of the integrative functional medicine type yeah. world. And, and because I was a doctor for the SEALs, I could call these people and say, hey man, I watched your TED talk, I read your book, I've seen your lecture. I'm the doctor for the West Coast SEAL teams. I was wondering if I could come train with you or if I could consult with you. And everybody was happy to help. So I got to learn like super steep learning curve is mm. perfect. Um, and somewhere, yeah, I don't know, maybe six months into it, um, maybe not that long, maybe three or four months into it. I, you know, after hearing the same story over and over and over again, and I was looking for adrenal fatigue and I was you know, worried about maybe this was shell shock or combat. Like, you know, this was 2009. They'd already been at war for eight years. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really know, but the one thing that popped up to me was the, this, this, that they were all using Ambien. Almost mm -hmm. every, like I'd say 95% of the people who came in my office were using Ambien mm. and probably 95% of that 95% were using Ambien and alcohol. Um, yeah, and for those of you guys that are listening, Ambien, if you're not familiar with it, real strong sleep medication. Yeah. And uh, so they were coming in and, and you know, having all these problems and, you know, maybe about the hundredth guy said something to me about Ambien. I was like, I wonder like what the side effect profile is of Ambien. And so I started doing my research on that, which led me to going, well, you know, what does Ambien do to sleep? And oh, what should sleep be doing without Ambien? And what, mm. and, and then when you start learning about how all your hormones are re-regulated while you're mm. asleep and all your yeah. repair, all your immunity, like pretty much everything good <laughs> happens while you're asleep. Yeah. And if you yeah. interfere with the quality of sleep, the, <clears throat> you know, the sleep architecture of the, the different uh, stages of sleep over time. When you interfere with that, you interfere with the benefits of sleep. Mm. Yeah. And Ambien interferes with that and alcohol interferes with that. So just getting people off of Ambien and getting people to quit drinking right before bed, you know, I night and day difference. Like I'm not saying mm. it was the hundred percent solution, but it was a, it was a huge. That's uh, interesting too, because I know a lot of people that take Ambien have a lot of anxiety about trying to sleep without it. Right, right. And that's that's how I invented my sleep supplement because yeah. 
I couldn't just take away their ambient. Trade something out. Yeah. Suck it up, right? Like I had to give them <laughs> something else. Um, and so, I mean, I started with just vitamin D3. That was kind of the big, yeah. that's kind of the beginning of the awareness around vitamin D3. Mm -hmm. And all of my guys are vitamin D3 deficient. So I thought, yeah, they work at night, they sleep during the day. When they do go outside, they're covered in camouflage and equipment. Like it's vitamin D3. I'm the smartest doctor in the world. There, solved it, right? Uh, yeah, it was a partial solution. And then I learned, well, you know, vitamin D3 requires magnesium. Oh, okay. Yeah. How's their magnesium? Oh, that doesn't matter. Check their red blood cell magnesium. Oh, okay. Like they're all deficient. Okay. Give them magnesium and vitamin D3. Well, mm -hmm. let's get a little dusting of melatonin just to get them to sleep. And then, you know, and, and then I just kept adding ingredient by ingredient. Mm -hmm. And then because it was such a motivated crowd, you know, they would journal, they would, like they track everything. They're really disciplined about uh, using all the supplements and they would come and give me feedback and we would adjust the quantities and the brand because they were just having to go out and buy right. every ingredient separately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was, there was no combination product. Yeah, and, yeah. and it was a pain in the butt. This is pre Amazon, you know, yeah. they were going to three different supplement stores and, you know, some were 90 day supplies and some were 30 day supplies and some were liquids and some were powders and some were pills. And it was just a pain in the butt. And they were like, man, just make it a, just make a product out of this for us. And I'm like, sure, sure. I'll do that. Not having any idea how complex yeah. that would be. <laughs> um, <laughs> so finally after them haranguing me for years about it, I'm like, all right, fine. I'll make a product real quick and then I'll go back. Like I'll just, I'll leave my brick and mortar for a year. I'll do consulting. I'll do this. And then I'll go right back. Well, that's five years ago, you know, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. so I'm still consulting and running the supplement company uh, and doing a little bit of brick and mortar, but you know, it'll be a while before that's the primary gig. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a great product. I was just looking at it before our interview, a fantastic product. And I want to come back to that, but obviously right now, as we're speaking, it's March 30th, 2020. And, uh, all over the news, we're talking about the coronavirus, COVID-19. We've pretty much shut down our world. Um, you know, our economy is dropping and uh, you know, a lot going on with that. And so being an MD, uh, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts and feelings about what's going on with this and uh, action steps people can take. Obviously, sleep is huge. We can definitely talk about that as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the most important part of this um, is mindset uh, right now. I mean, there, there's nothing there's nothing that's going to make this uh go away right right now mm -hmm. uh, it's going to take some time to go away but the one thing that you can you know that every person listening to this can do is they can make this the most positive uh, the most positive event that they can they can you mm -hmm. know they do their best to make lemons out of lemon or lemonade out of yeah. lemons or whatever the yeah. phrase is um and so i mean there there's opportunities to have some personal growth and relationship growth and all sorts of other stuff that you can do, but that requires you to have the right mindset. If yeah. you're, if you're approaching this from a place of fear, you know, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to come out of this with any kind of gains, right? Your yeah. uh, fear is, is the least productive uh, kind of mindset to be in. Uh, and you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have a lot of anxiety, period, and they do a lot yeah. in their lives out of fear of failure and fear of embarrassment and shame and all that other stuff. And that's just a hard way to go through life. And you add this on top of that, you know, it's overwhelming. And, you know, it's something I talk a lot about is, um, you know, talk about the fight or flight system, right? And mm -hmm. most people are familiar with that. And that essentially is just like maximum fear, right? That's, that's the maximum stress you 
the maximum stress response your body's capable of. And it's important to think about what's going on during that. So when you hit this fight or flight, that essentially means that your brain has perceived a threat to your life or serious injury or something like that. Um, and you are ready to marshal every resource you have to prevent that. And what does that marshaling of resources look like? Well, we're, we're optimizing our body, right? We're marshaling the resources for our physical body to be able to fight or flee. That's mm -hmm. it. Not to survive and not to think and not to grow. None of that stuff matters, right? So, you know, you mobilize all your stored glucose that's stored as glycogen. You mobilize that through cortisol. You increase your heart rate, increase your blood pressure. You get stronger. You get more enduring. Your reflexes get faster. Your pain threshold goes up. Your pupils dilate. You take in more, you take in more, uh, a higher visual field, more light. You hyper focus on whatever the threat is. Your pulmonary system dilates. You're taking in more oxygen. Uh, and if you think about it, you're, you're kind of like the superhuman version of you, right? You're, you're the most yeah. optimal physical machine you can possibly be. So why wouldn't you want to run around like that all the time? Well, there's a lot of stuff that's not going on, right? Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's not happening that's beneficial. Like you aren't, you aren't doing anything around reproduction at that point, right? You can't yeah. reproduce during that. You aren't doing anything around immunity. You aren't repairing any damaged tissues. You aren't fighting off infection. You aren't fighting off parasites. You aren't fighting off anything. Your digestion isn't working. Your brain isn't working, essentially. Your prefrontal cortex essentially shuts down. Yeah. And you want to become really impulsive because if you have to think about avoiding the danger, it's going to be too late. So you become super impulsive, um, which means you aren't making decisions, period, during fight or flight. But, you know, if you were in a gunfight and I asked you what your phone number was, there's no way you would know, right? <laughs> like, you, you'd probably shoot me for asking you, you know, like... <clears throat> It, it's just not a state that your brain's in. Um, and anything that happens during fight or flight is a super emotional event, right? And that has to then be processed. And when does all of it get processed? It all gets processed while you sleep. Hmm. The exact opposite of in your physiology of fight or flight, the exact opposite is deep sleep. Stages three and four of sleep. That's when you have almost no stress hormones and your body is almost completely useless but everything else that we said wasn't going on, that's happening maximally, right? So that's when your immune system is its highest. That's when you're repairing the damage to all your tissues. All of your anabolic hormones are surging. All of your catabolic hormones are getting processed and taken away. You're storing glycogen. You're repairing damaged tissues. You're fighting off infections. You're digesting. Your brain is improving. You're actually getting, you're emotionally categorizing the things that have happened to you during the day. You're flushing waste products out of your brain. You're making durable tracks out of things that you've learned uh, during you know, during the day. You're uh, once those durable tracks are made, you're processing that information and comparing it to other information that you already know. So you're actually learning while you're asleep. You're getting better at anything, whether it's physical or mental or whatever. And then you wake up the most capable you will ever be. Like the most capable you're ever going to be is when you've had a good night's sleep, and you wake up and you're at your peak. Physic physically, physiologically, mentally, and emotionally. Like that's when you're at your peak. Maybe not immediately because you might be groggy yeah. and take some time to yeah. wake up. But once you're well rested, that's when you're the best at everything. So why would you do yourself the disservice of not waking up when you should, right? Like wh yeah. why would you not give yourself that ability to reset? The whole purpose of sleep today is to pre prepare my brain and my body for tomorrow. Yeah. And if I don't sleep, 
tomorrow still comes and I'm just not prepared. And then where do I, where do I, where do I go to get that energy? Right? So we have this contract that it takes eight hours to regenerate and restore and get ready for tomorrow. What if I, if I only sleep six hours, how do I make up for those two hours? Same way you do with money is there's a deficit. I'm taking, I'm re, I'm now robbing Peter to pay Paul. So now I'm taking away from my growth. I'm taking away from my intellectual improvement. I'm taking away from my emotional stability. I'm taking away from my willpower, my concentration and everything else. I'm pulling resources to survive instead of storing resources and utilizing the proper resources to thrive that next day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so let's talk about, you know, basically some good sleep hygiene as far as what time somebody should go to sleep and kind of like walk through what somebody should be doing throughout the course of a day to help give them that really rock solid night of sleep. Right. So, you know, as I was, as I was talking about, if you think of the, you know, let's say the peak or, you know, peak stress hormones, fight or flight. Well, most of us don't get there during the day, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's, that's a near car wreck. That's a a violent attack. That's something super, intense so you know this is fight or flight normal somewhere around here and then deep Mm -hmm. sleep is like way below that right yeah so if this is your normal day-to-day if you're living here instead of here that difference you're getting like halfway to fight or flight so you have half you have half of that going on so you've impaired your brain and body to the same level that you you know that you're getting closer to fight or flight so the first thing that people need to do is control their stress. Um, and that can be done through meditation and mindfulness and breath work and Tai Chi and like body movements, like whatever it is that you like to do, you can do that. I'd say during this time, the most important thing is to develop your own narrative, right? Um, right now where the media is driving the narrative for most people, I'd say probably, I'm totally making up the number, but 80, let's say 80% of the world is relying on the media for their narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, the media is scared, politicians are scared, people are scared, and they're not necessarily putting out the most useful narrative, right? Right. Death toll skyrockets. Um, Yeah. You know, economy plummets. All right, well, those those are emotionally charged words, right? Yeah, and they also get people to actually click on the link or, you know, read that because it's it's an extreme. Right, and if you tell me, well, the death toll skyrocketed, Wow, what does that mean? Right? Yeah, or subjective. Forty yeah. percent increase in cases. Yeah. Like, wow, that seems really big. Let me read about that. And then you read that, and it's all relative, right? It's like compared yeah. to what? Like skyrocketed compared to what? Oh, we had two hundred deaths yesterday, and we had three hundred today. That's skyrocketing. Okay, well, I mean, that's bad. We're going in the wrong direction. It's not what we want to have. But is that truly skyrocketing? Does that justify that phrase? Like, if you went from yeah. two hundred to two thousand, I'd say you skyrocket. Mm-hmm. Um, but the really important thing, like to, no matter how many cases we have, and we could talk about, you know, the importance of a case versus a serious case versus a death. And the only end point we truly know right now, the only data we really know right now is death. Like that's it. Like, yeah. you know, cases like that depends on how you do the test and yeah. who you do the test on and how big the, and there's all sorts of stuff going on. But I just encourage people to go find their own data, you know, go to CDC website, go to National Institute of Health, you know, go to PubMed, like go on, you know, World of Meters and Johns Hopkins site and do all of that stuff and get your own data. Because, you know, the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, I, I, I've done this is a few days old, so maybe it's slightly different now. But it, if you look at 
if you just say, uh, let's consider this worldwide pandemic from January, so Q1 of this year, mm-hmm. uh, even though we know there were deaths in December, but let's just make it simple. Let's say Q1. Yeah. Well, you know, in Q1, if you look at all of the people who have died worldwide, the percentage of people who have died from coronavirus is like 0.003 or something, yeah. right? Or maybe 0.03, which means you have a 99.97 chance of dying of something else. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that coronavirus isn't serious or we shouldn't be doing anything about it. But what I'm saying is that if you're spending all your time worried about something that has a 0.03% chance of killing you, and even if that skyrockets and goes up to 3%, well, you still have a 97% chance of dying from something else. So if you aren't waking up every morning worried about dying in a car accident, or you aren't waking up every morning worried about dying of cancer um, or heart attack or stroke, like all these things that we know kill people every Mm -hmm. day, large volumes, right? So you can look at the total risk or what's called the absolute risk. So if all people were created equal and everybody had the same risk of death, you know, my risk of death would be relative to how many people have died this year versus how many people have died from a certain cause, car wrecks, coronavirus, whatever. And that, you know, the, the, the part over the whole, that would give me, well, what's my absolute risk of dying from this? Now, we know you can age stratify that, right? And, you, and if you don't yeah. drive a car, you aren't likely to die in a car crash, you know? And, um, yeah. it, you know, if you're older and you have comorbidities and you have health issues, you're more likely to die from any influenza-like yeah. illness, any type of infectious disease, communicable disease. Uh, you're more likely to die from that than if you're younger and healthier. Yeah. And, and we so, have a bias. We have a public health bias, too. Like, if you... We know 2,000 people die every single day from from a heart attack, right? From heart disease. Right, right. And so if you were to have heart disease and you're in the hospital for the flu or for COVID-19 and you have a heart attack and you die, they're going to say something along the lines of, you know, coronavirus mediated, you know, cardiovascular consequences or something. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to be tracked as a death due to COVID-19. COVID COVID associated complications. Right, exactly. what does that mean? Like, yeah. You know, and, and so here's the, here's the truth about it. And again, I'm not saying that this isn't important. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I have parents in their seventies. I don't want my parents to die. Like I care right. and love, I care about people and love people who are at a higher risk of this than yeah. I am or than say my kids are or something. Right. And so I'm, I'm not diminishing it, but if you want to be realistic and you look at the overall, like the overall death toll from influenza-like illness, which this would definitely qualify to fit into that. And it doesn't mean the flu, it just means yeah. some sort of infection agent yeah. leading to likely a pneumonia, leading to some multi-system, you know, shutdown to where the people end up succumbing to multiple things, essentially, right? So if you're, if you're otherwise healthy, if you don't have comorbidity, regardless of yeah. your age, your risk of death is like, a 0.9% if you have COVID, right? And, and and again, that's not even age stratifying. If you age stratify that, it's probably like a 0.01% for yeah. you know, anyone under 55 or 60 or something. And so, you know, it just makes sense to me that uh, you do your own research and you develop your own narrative, right? And you say, yeah. right, you know, th- this isn't exactly... Uh, the forefront of everybody it shouldn't be the forefront of everybody's uh, um, fears 
and and I say things, you know, I've been saying for the, you know, almost the last month now, it's like, if you, if you drive a car every day, you are, you have an astronomically like multifold uh, exponential more chance of dying in a car wreck. Mm. Now we don't, we don't tell people, we don't want a single, we're not going to accept a single death from cars. Well, that would mean you'd have to get rid of all cars yeah. and nobody, and that, nobody's suggesting that. And I'm not saying that to be glib because we know that cars are dangerous and we know yeah. that COVID is dangerous and we're doing what we can about cars to make cars safer. Right. We, the government makes mandates that your car has to be able to, you know, survive a certain car crash. Right. And you yeah. have to have a certain amount of structural integrity after this impact. Yeah. And you have to have airbags and you have to have seatbelts. Yeah. And you get tickets if you don't drive the speed limit. You go yeah. to jail if you drink and drive. And you get tickets yeah. for texting and driving. Yeah. And you get tickets for running red lights and not paying attention to stop signs and driving recklessly. But even if you do everything perfectly, somebody could still crash into you and kill you. Yeah. Right? And so unless you're getting up every day going, oh, my God, I'm so worried about dying in a car crash, you shouldn't wake up every day going, I'm so worried about me or my family members dying of COVID. Yeah. And again, do what you can. Wear your seatbelt and wash your hands. Drive the speed limit and don't cough on people. Like we can do many things at once, mm -hmm. right? And and I'm not I'm not proposing anything to do with policy. It's not my place to say what we should or shouldn't yeah. be doing. Like do what the experts are saying we should do. And right now they're saying that we should, you know, social distance and wash our hands frequently. So you wash your hands five times more than you ordinarily wash your hands. You don't cough on people and don't sneeze on people and you don't touch your face as much and like we know what to do. Just keep getting the message out there. We know what to do. And now we've done everything we can do. Just, just like a car. We've done everything that we can think to do to reduce our risk of dying in a car crash. And we still get in our cars and we drive every day knowing that people are going to die every day. Yeah. And that's the truth that a certain number of people are going to die every day. You know, like, uh, you know, I, I forget the exact numbers, but just like three or four million people die per year or per month, you know, worldwide. And we have 35,000 deaths worldwide in, in three months. So again, just, you know, relative. So I, I waxed way too far with that. <laughs> um, you know, so the mindset is the most important thing. And I, for me, and this all depends on the person, but for me, the most comforting thing is to look at my own statistics and go, okay, compared to what? Like, what is this compared to what? What do we know about this? Like, you know, what is the likely harm of this? And yeah, this is bad for the economy. Okay, compared to what? Like, is this the worst? Is this the worst thing that's ever happened in the economy? Eh, not so far, but could could turn out that way. Could turn out to be the worst pandemic ever. So far, it's not. Not worth panicking about right now. And even if it turns out to be that, if there's nothing else you can do, all you can do is do do what you do and hope that you're you know you're one of them that comes out on the other side. Um, but you know, at some level, we don't have absolute control over that. It, you know, if we had absolute control, no one would ever die, right? Who, no, who's going to elect to die, you know? Uh, yeah. And again, not saying that you shouldn't put importance on it, but do that, get your mindset under control and realize that the best thing that you can do for society and yourself and your family and your loved ones is to be the best you you can possibly mm. be, yeah. to have the best emotions, mm. to be, you know, to have the best relationships, to take care of your health and to reduce your risk of getting the disease and your risk of giving the disease to someone else. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if you think about it, you know, viruses aren't active things. Viruses 
you know, viruses get inside of us and they use our cells to replicate themselves. And that's pretty much all they do, right? They don't truly cause disease. They just hijack all of our cells. And then hijacking all of our cells, then our cells aren't doing what they should be doing. And they're, they're, you know, therefore it leads to health problems and it's taxing on our energy systems and our immune system. And so if we know that's, if we know that's true, you have to think of it like this, like what if I got one virus and I put it on my tongue, would I have COVID? Like, would I get the disease? I don't know. I doubt it. I doubt like one virus would do it, but you know, would I have a hundred or a thousand? So at some point it's going to hijack my machinery, my cells machinery, and it's going to start making copies of itself. And then I can cough that out and I can sneeze that out and I can get it on my hands and touch other things and other people can get it. So the, the, the fewer of those that I have, the fewer viruses I have to cough out and the shorter the time period that I have that disease until my immune system overwhelms it and gets rid of it and develops antibodies to it and crushes it all up into tiny little pieces and makes white waste product of it. Until that happens, I can give it to somebody else, right? So why wouldn't I want to give myself the best opportunity to get rid of this the quickest and the least like make me the least likely to become a tax on the health system? Because yeah. the biggest problem right now is the concerns of overwhelming the health system. Yeah. Everybody's going to be exposed to this, right? Worldwide, every single person on the planet is going to be yeah. exposed to the virus with, within a year, probably, maybe within six months. So, that, so we can't say we're trying to prevent everybody from getting exposed to it. We just don't want everybody to be exposed at once and overwhelm the system. So the best thing that you can do is if you happen to be one of the people to get it, you'd be somebody that doesn't need a ventilator. You'd be somebody who doesn't need to be, you're somebody who doesn't need to be hospitalized because you're overall healthy. And the best way to be healthy is, again, to take care of yourself and don't do anything that impacts your immune system. Well, sleeping two hours less than you need per night lowers your immune system by 30%. That's a pretty big deal right there, right? And people are talking about supplements. I want to take these supplements, immune-boosting supplements. Like, all right, well, that's supplemental, right? That You're talking about a 1% change. You can improve your sleep and get a 30% improvement, right? Yeah. You cannot eat food that irritates your gut and causes an immune yeah. response and takes away from your immunity because you're having to fight off this infection that you essentially put in yourself purposefully because you ate something that you know doesn't work well in your system. Um, and then of course, like the stress mitigating aspects of exercise, and I'm, I'm sure you know, you know the 24,000 things that exercise does to improve your immune system and your mind and control your stress and you know all, all of that stuff. So. You know, if you can do those four things, it's the same pillars. The good news, what I keep telling people, the good news is it's the same stuff. Like nothing I'm saying changes. Um, yeah, I think the this whole scare really puts more importance on having a healthy lifestyle. Because when you have a healthy lifestyle, you're, I mean, as close to bulletproof from it as possible. And so, like you were talking about with sleep, I mean, sleep is arguably the number one thing you can prioritize right now, along with, you know, your your, your mindset and stress in order to prevent getting the coronavirus or at least having, you know, uh, major symptoms, a major setback from it. So let's right. talk about what, what is a lifestyle like for somebody that's looking to optimize their sleep? What do they do from like the time they wake up in the morning? What are some of the best practices? You know, like when's the best time to exercise? How about sun exposure? Let's go into all those types of things in order to get the best quality sleep. Let's talk about like best bedtime, you know, like what time they should be in bed, all of that. Right. Well, um, well, I mean, I, I, I think 
that like many things, not just the coronavirus, but many mm -hmm. things scientific, we don't really know a lot. Uh, there's a lot of things we don't know, but what we do know, and this is observational, which a lot of our recommendations are observational, right? But observational data suggests that, uh, like if you've ever been camping, you'll know this, but you know, also if you find hunter gatherer tribes who have never been exposed to electricity, mm -hmm. they go to sleep about the three hours after the after the sun goes down and they wake up right around sun up and that ends up being about eight hours of sleep most nights um and the reason for that is because there's a lot of physiological changes that goes on in our brain when the light goes away from our eyes and if you don't have electricity to put lights in your eyes that changes things and then if you don't have electricity you also don't there's not as many things you can do right you, like uh hunter gatherers don't go to nightclubs and they don't watch texas chainsaw massacre and they don't play on their iphones like they don't have any of this stuff to like put this light in their eyes and if you if you overstimulate yourself when you can do that by exercising right if you stimulate yourself when your brain should be getting you ready for bed that interferes with your ability to sleep so the ideal bedtime would be sometime close to you know somewhere, let's say two to four hours after the sun goes down, right? And then waking up right around sunup. So whatever turns out to be about eight hours of sleep, which is maybe eight and a half hours, nine hours in bed, people can do that right now. Like uh, people couldn't do that, can't usually do that. And so that I get a lot of pushback, but right now you don't have an excuse to not do it. And Doc, um, I've always heard that you get a stronger melatonin release and human growth hormone release when you go to sleep before midnight. And I've heard the, the phrase, and I've repeated it as well, that every hour of sleep before midnight is equivalent to the regenerative capacity of three hours of sleep after midnight. What are your thoughts on that? I, I don't know about those numbers, but the, the concept is sound. So um, when, you, when you go to sleep, um, let's see, somewhat in so quickly, you'll just talk about circadian rhythm. I'm sure most of your yeah. audience have heard circadian rhythm. It doesn't mean anything. It's circa is about D is a day. It's about a day rhythm. So if we don't have any electricity or any action interaction with the world. If we you know, go down in a bunker or a cave or something and, uh, and everything's artificial, uh, the male circadian rhythm is slightly longer than 24 hours and the females are slightly shorter. So over the course of you know, a week, you, you know, if you're off by 30 minutes a day, you're pretty far off by the end of the week. And after the course of a month, like you've cycled in and out. Um, so it, it's, it's important to realize that there is an ideal time for you to be asleep. And that does shift. And the reason we use the sun is to stay entrained with the planet so that we're sleeping at the right time and we're awake at the right time. And what happens when you fall asleep at, at the right time, when you're in alignment with your circadian rhythm and you're falling asleep two to four hours after the sun goes down, is you go right into a deep sleep cycle and it's a really long deep sleep yeah. cycle. And then you come up through that and you have a little bitty short REM period. And then you go down into another period where it's another long sleep, deep sleep cycle and slightly more REM and slightly less deep. And then it progresses. And then after about halfway through the night, it it turns out that the majority of your sleep will be REM sleep. And by the time you hit your last sleep cycle, it's like 90% REM sleep and a tiny bit of deep sleep. And so if you go to bed late, there's a good chance you're going to pass over some of the deep sleep. Uh, if, you, if you're otherwise circadianly aligned most of the time, you're going to kind of just hurdle over that. And if you use alcohol, 
as a sleep aid. Alcohol interferes with deep sleep a lot, and all sleep drugs interfere with deep sleep to some degree, uh, but they mess with REM sleep even more. So if you want to, if you're thinking about repair, so even your brain, a lot of, a lot of the good stuff that happens in your brain is happening during REM sleep, but at the beginning of the night, the, the neurons in your brain that provide the structure, they actually shrink by 30%. They contract and they create these little uh, canals for water to flow through, you know, not water, but the essential nervous system uh, uh, fluid to uh, cerebral spinal fluid, CSF. So you, when, and when, if you think about every cell in your body is just like, a, it's a single cell version of you. It, it takes nutrition and it does work and it excretes waste products and it excretes products. And, um, and so your, all your brain cells are doing that too. And so there's waste products building up in the, the space between your, your cells. And so this is the time where you flush all of that out. And then to your point, this is when you're the most anabolic. So when you first go to sleep and you're in those deep sleep cycles, that's when almost all your growth hormone is being secreted and almost all your testosterone is being secreted and almost all your, like everything anabolic, uh, yeah. IGF-1, like all of that's happening while you're in deep sleep. And then that steadily decreases over the day. And then when you go to sleep that night, you get a boost again, which is why if you don't test people at the right time of the day, all their anabolic hormones look like crap. You know, if you test, yeah. you test anybody's testosterone level at 5 p.m., they all look like they're low because it gets progressively lower throughout the day. Um, so you're, to get back to my point, when you have the circadian rhythm and, it, and it's, it's not just you being awake and being asleep, that's, that's the idea behind the entrainment is that we're going to sleep when it's dark and we're going to be awake while it's light. And if you don't, and if you don't go to sleep when the sun is telling you to be asleep, or, you know, when the planet is telling you to be asleep, there's other cells in your body. Well, you know, my liver cells aren't attached to my eyeballs, right? So they don't, my liver cells still think it's 3 a.m. if it's 3 a.m., right? And that doesn't matter if I'm awake. Like my liver cells don't do the same thing that while I'm awake as they do when I'm asleep. And neither does my kidney and neither do my muscles. And like everything, everything changes. Your, the cells in your body change their activity. So if you're not sleeping in alignment with the circadian rhythm, you're like, you can't ever get the full benefit of sleep. So that's why you should go to sleep, you know, around that time wake up around sunup and go to sleep two to four hours after mm -hmm. uh, bedtime. And that's, that's step number one. Um, well, step number one is to realize that sleep's really important and value it and convince yourself how important it is. Then make it your priority. Right? That's the key. Um, and then go to sleep around that time and then worry about controlling your stress. Because the other thing that I didn't talk much about, most people are familiar with the light and that's why we have, programs on our phones and our computers that block blue light. We have glasses that block blue light and we have light bulbs that don't emit blue light. And we have all this stuff to try to reduce the blue light going in our eyes because that's one factor of going to sleep. The other factor of going to sleep though is a decrease of awareness of your environment. So one of the changes that happens, you know, after melatonin kind of starts the whole cycle, like once that melatonin starts being secreted, that's like the beginning of all of the changes in the brain. And it builds up an amino uh, or a, a neuropeptide called a gamma aminobutyric acid or GABA. And that slows down our, our neocortex. That slows down our interaction to the world. And it should slow down our 
interaction or worries or concerns about the interaction of the world as well, which is why stress, you can override it with stress, but you can override it with activity too, right? So like if you're watching a really dangerous, scary, emotional movie or having a big emotional fight with somebody and you're wearing blue blocking glasses and you're, you know, have blue blockers on your screen and all this other stuff, you still aren't decreasing your awareness of your environment. Yeah. So then your brain's not ready to go to bed and then your body doesn't get ready to go to bed. And then if you, even if you do sleep, you're sleeping in a suboptimal condition. It takes longer to get into your cycles and the quality of your sleep isn't there. So, you know, controlling the stimulation right before you go to bed, you don't do your work product, you know, you don't crank on your work project until yeah. right before you go to bed. So the, the, the easiest sleep advice that I tell people is like, just think of what your ancestors did. Right. So just go back 2000 years. What do you think people did? The sun went down. What do you think they did? You don't, you don't have to study history. Like just, they went to wherever they lived and they sat in the dark and maybe they ate a little, maybe they talked a little bit, maybe they built a fire and they progressively got more tired and they went to sleep and then they woke up and the sun came up and they did it every single day. Yeah, so I always tell people don't have goals after 9 PM. Like if you have like goals, like, hey, I need to accomplish this, this, and this. That's all driven by that sympathetic nervous system, dopamine pathways. It's not going to allow you to wind down. You should be winding down. You know what I mean? Relaxing, yeah. right? Doing relaxing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what I what I tell people is to set an alarm. You have two alarms. Right? Whether you need an alarm to wake up in the morning or not. And this is this is especially important if you're stressed out. But you have two alarms. And one alarm you set an hour before you're going to be asleep. And the other alarm you will, you set when you want to wake up. And once that alarm clock goes off in the night, an hour before you're going to be, go to sleep, that alarm clock is just as important as the morning alarm. Yeah. They're they're of equal importance because both of them are going to determine how much sleep you get. And so, you set that alarm clock. And if you've ever you know had kids, or if you remember being a little kid, <clears throat> you know there's a protracted bedtime, right? There's a protracted bedtime routine, a ritual to get your stuff ready to go to sleep, and it's, decreasing activities, decreasing emotionality, decreasing like the no rough housing, as our parents would say. Um, you decrease the light going into your eyes. You do calmer, more relaxing things. Um, and your body temperature lowers. Like that's the main reason we give kids beds or baths at bedtime because nobody takes 98 degree baths. You know, people take 85, 86 degree, 88 degree. Birth. So you're actually lowering the kid's body temperature by putting them in the bath. And then we're decreasing sensation, right? That's the whole reason for the onesie, with, like the soft onesie with the powder. It's like you're decreasing the amount of stimulation to the skin. You're talking slower, more rhythmically to them. You're reading books that they know all the words to. Why? Because that's familiar. That's settling, like going with what you already know. That's settling down. And you settle a kid down. You don't take a kid banging blocks together and smashing trucks and throw them in a bed and turn off the light. It would never work. Yeah. So don't think you can do it as an adult either. Like you need a ritual. And when that alarm clock goes off at night, that's you have an hour to get your ritual in place to get yourself to bed. So that can be slightly different for everybody else. But all you have to do is decrease the light, decrease the stimulation and worry, and yeah. lower your body temperature a little bit. And you're ready for sleep, man. And then if you're stressed, if you're really stressed out and the stress is affecting your ability to go to sleep or stress is making you wake up early, um, or decreasing your joy throughout the day. Uh, you know, I tell people another thing you do, you do this during the day, like preferably midday when your brain's working really well. 
make yourself to list, you make yourself a to-do list, and make yourself a to-worry list. And the to-do list is everything that you need to get done tomorrow. And the to-worry list is all the crap you don't have any control over, but you're still going to worry about it. And you know you're going to worry about it. So you don't want to rob yourself the opportunity to worry. And so you make yourself a pact that, hey, here's my list of everything that's concerning to me. The best I'm ever going to be at handling everything on that list is after I've had a good night's sleep. So yeah. until my alarm clock goes off in the morning, I'm not going to think about anything on that. Why would I? Why would I? Right. Like I'm not, I'm not as capable as I'm going to be four hours from now. Why the hell am I going to spend time worrying on it right now? I'm not going to worry about it. If I remember there's something I, that I didn't put on my list, I can get up and I can write that on my list and you go back to sleep. You don't look at your alarm clock. You don't have a clock, right? If you need an alarm clock, you can put it under a towel, put it under your bed, put it under your nightstand, put it in a drawer or whatever. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, go to the bathroom if you need to go to the bathroom, whatever, but it should be dark in your room, all right? We're decreasing light, we're decreasing stimulation. It should be dark in your room, you get up, you go to the bathroom if you need to. Otherwise, you just lay in bed and you relax. You do progressive muscle relaxation, you do visualization, you do meditation, you can listen, do some guided meditation, listen to a calming audio book or something and just distract yourself and just lay there and relax. And if your alarm clock goes off 15 minutes later, like, all right, I got seven and a half hours of sleep and 15 minutes of meditation. Yeah. But if your alarm clock isn't going to go off for three or four hours and you don't know which the case is and you just lay there and relax, you're going to fall back asleep. Yeah. And that's the best thing you do. Like it, that seems overwhelmingly simple and too simple for people to even want to take action on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like that a lot. I mean, I always tell people if you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, there's a lot of people have anxiety that they're not going to fall back asleep. I always say, you know, it's a great time to do breathing practices. Right. That way you get your meditation in right there. The most common cause uh, for maintenance insomnia or even initiation insomnia, the most, the most common cause for insomnia is, is that like having your, having your mind stressed out. And then once you once you develop a pattern of being stressed out and not being able to sleep, then you, you drift into something we call psychophysiologic insomnia and psychophysiologic insomnia means you can't sleep because you're worried that you might not sleep. Yeah, yeah exactly. And now you're in a world of hurt. Now you're going to wake up the next day. You're not going to have the resources you need to get through the day. So you're going to increase your stress hormones in order to mobilize fuel sources in your body to get through that day. And now you're going to have more stress hormone when you go to sleep. And it's going to make your sleep worse. And then you're going to wake up the next day with more stress hormones because you didn't sleep well. Yeah. And you know, getting out of that cycle is the number one. Like that is yeah, number so one. What yeah. What are your thoughts on sleep tracking devices like the Aura Ring, different things like that? Yeah, I think from the data I've seen, I think the Aura Ring is the most accurate. If that's important to you, um, you know what I I tell people to track sleep so that we can measure it. Yeah. Right. Because if we don't measure it, we can't improve it. I have you know, 75 year old entrepreneurs that are still getting after it every day. They don't have any interest to in putting any kind of sleep tracking device on their fingers or wrist or their phone. And like, so I have them, you know, have a little journal, right? What time you went to bed, right? What time you woke up, right? How you feel. If you remember anything about your night, that works just as well. As long, you know, as long as you're tracking something, yeah. if you're somebody who really likes data and you want to compete with your friends and whatever, like, yeah, sure. Go for it. Um, but, you know, just measure it just like you would measure your workouts. Like, 
you know, when you lift weights, you don't just randomly put weights on. You base it off of what you usually do or what you've done, you know, the week before, the day before, whatever. You know, when you run and, you know, like every everybody measures yeah. exercise to some degree or, uh, you know, yeah. even if yeah, you I think just the like, aura ring, I think the aura ring is pretty cool because you can obviously track your, your REM sleep, your deep sleep, and you can look for any sort of trends, right? Like, for example, right. And, that, and, that's what, and, and that's what the, I, I didn't say that. Thank you for yeah. bringing that up. That, that's the most useful aspect yeah. of it is to find a trend. So I wear a Garmin and I, yeah. I, I really like the aura ring, but they, but I have to wear a pinky ring and I, I just don't <laughs> like the pinky ring. Like it yeah. just, it just, there's something about it. Like I just, I'm always aware of it. Um, and, uh, you know, whether you're wearing a Garmin or whoop band or like, Mm-hmm. any of the other things it doesn't so much matter that it's accurate what matters is you watch the trend like yeah. your your point so it's like i know like my garmin will say that i got zero deep sleep and it'll say i got 100 percent deep sleep neither one of those could yeah, possibly right. be correct so <laughs> but it'll tell me how long i was asleep pretty accurately right um and you know it, it gives me it gives me my resting heart rate while i was asleep like yeah. whatever like that's that's enough like i can get heart rate variability from it and things like that yeah but that's something I can track and I can, if nothing else, I can look at it and go, if I didn't really track it, I would have told you that I slept eight hours last night, but actually I only slept seven hours and 10 minutes. Right. And you know, that's enough. So, um, and if I see a trend, like Garmin's are great about that. You can look up seven day data and four month data and all this stuff. And I can say, you know, like over the last week, my average sleep has only been six hours and 59 minutes. That's not enough. Right. Like I need yeah. to, I need to really focus on this. Yeah. 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 I think that's great. And, uh, heart rate variability. Let's talk yeah. about that and how, how big an important role that plays when it comes to recovery. Right. Well, I mean, you alluded to it earlier when you're talking about the sympathetic nervous system, right? So, yeah. um, for your, anybody who doesn't know is listening there, you have what's called the autonomic nervous system, which you could just think of as automatic. I don't know why they have to call it autonomic. Uh, and it controls all the stuff that you don't think about. Like you don't think about how often you're breathing. You don't think about your heart rate. You don't think about your muscle tension. You don't think about your blood pressure. All that stuff's controlled by autonomic, your digestion, uh, you know, hormone productions, like all this stuff. It, it's like, it's not something you're voluntarily thinking about. And we talked about, you know, the fight or flight system. Well, that's maximum sympathetic. Yeah. Right. And the, and the autonomic system is split up into sympathetic and parasympathetic and the parasympathetic maximum parasympathetic is deep sleep. Right. So those are exactly opposite. And what you want is those things to be fairly balanced as far as their influence on your physiology. And one thing that's easy to measure is your heart rate. Right. And your and so if your heart rate is equally impacted by sympathetic, which is stimulating your heart rate, and it's really parasympathetic, it's really kind of an absence of stimulation to your heart rate. It's not like slowing it down. It's just like not causing it to fire. And so if you have an equal balance of sympathetic and parasympathetic, well, then your heart's just kind of firing on its own accord because you don't really have a lot of sympathetic tone telling it to fire fast. Yeah. And you don't have a lot of, you know, parasympathetic you have a you know you don't have high influence from either one of them you have equal influence yeah. of either so your beat to beat rhythm so like you still like heart rate variability has nothing to do with how long how many times in my heart rate beat this minute versus last minute like it's not that it's like beat to beat variability like 
and it's it's infinitesimally small, which is why it has to be measured through electronics, you know. But just milliseconds of difference, like yeah. how how regular does your heart rate? Uh, how much does it change, right? And so if it changes a lot, then you know you have a balanced autonomic nervous system, which means you aren't running around stressed out of your mind. And really, the only way to be kind of over parasympathetic is to be is, is to just deplete yourself. Like when you get really overtrained, you can have excessive parasympathetic tone which is suppressing everything is making your heart rate too slow and your blood pressure too low and your thought processes too low and your reflexes too too slow so you're kind of oh, like uh, the body's going into hibernation because it's, yeah you know and then you can, and then there's certain drugs that will increase that well yeah, that'll increase yeah. your your parasympathetics but for the most part what we're when we say balancing your autonomics we're really talking about decreasing your sympathetic tone yeah um, because we live in a world that's just so much more complex than we evolved in. That I mean, there's just like there's like right now there's too much stuff going on. Like I can see you on my television. I can see myself on my television. I can see stuff going on outside. I get lights coming in from all different angles. You know, and, and it's just like we we weren't we we didn't evolve to do that. And so yeah. we're trying to evolve into that. But the best thing that we can do right now is just to like decrease the amount of uh tension like processing tension to that right so it doesn't matter that all these things are happening it matters what i think about all these things happening and so if you're balanced out that way and you sleep well um and like i said if you don't sleep well you have to get you know, you have to get energy from somewhere and you're going to get it from stress hormones which means you're going to have more sympathetic tone which means that your heart rate variability is going to be lower right because you're sympathetic your, yeah and that means really your healing your adaptability that's yeah. all going to go down because right. your body's in survival mode. And your and your cognition. I mean, people yeah. underestimate that. Oh yeah. There's something is something as simple as willpower, just like yeah. ability to make a good decision. Like not even make a good decision, like just follow through with the decisions you've already made. Right. Like that's impaired when you're stressed yeah. out. That's impaired when you're sleep deprived. And you know, your emotionality, like your ability to communicate, your ability to process things and make sense out of things that could be upsetting to you. But if your brain's working well, you're like, oh, okay. And then the other thing, your, your prefrontal cortex, which is driven a lot by the balance of sympathetic, parasympathetic, yeah. so a lot like your heart rate variability, your brain's working at its best when your heart rate variability is at its highest. Yeah. The more sympathetic tone you have, the more you shut that prefrontal cortex down as if you were in fight or flight and everything was converging on one important thing. And right now, that one important thing could be coronavirus, right? Yeah. And if you're only thinking about that, then everything's hyper-focused on that. Well not only do we get like all of our joy from the prefrontal cortex, yeah. right? Cause it's allowing us to make sense that it's what we're interpreting what's coming into us through that, but it's also our simulator, right? So I, I don't have to say, I don't have to ask you if you want to you know, jump off my roof with me uh, to see if we get hurt. Right. Because like, you know, <laughs> you don't have to do it. Like you can simulate it and go, no, I've done, I've jumped off of other things and, like I know the effects of gravity and that looks like, no, I don't want to do that. You don't have to try it. Um, and so your ability to say, what's the most likely consequence out of something I'm currently just considering right now, that's all prefrontal cortex. And if you're stressed out, you make worse decisions and you can't concentrate as well. And your problem solving skills go down and your emotionality, that's the big thing. So if you, if you sleep deprive somebody because you sleep deprived, slept deprive them and you have, they have increased stress hormones and you put them around, you know, their significant other, their life partner who isn't sleep deprived 
and you and they spend the whole day together and then you interview them at the end of the day, they will both say that the other one was impaired. Like mm-hmm. if you sleep deprived me and my wife, it gets perfect sleep. She will say I was impaired, but I'll also say she was impaired mm. <laughs> and vice versa because yeah. we both perceive that something's not quite right. Yeah. And that's going to be true with your relationship with your children. That's going to be true yeah. with your coworkers and your friends and everybody that's important to you. You're negatively impacting that by being stressed. You're negatively impacting that by not getting enough sleep. Yeah. You owe it to yourself and the people that you care about to really prioritize good sleep. And let's talk about your sleep remedy product. Cause I was looking yeah. at the ingredients, great ingredients, magnesium L3 and eight, which I'm a huge fan of. Yeah. <clears throat> you got vitamin D in there. You've got GABA melatonin, 5-HTP, L-theanine, all really well-researched compounds that help yeah. induce that deep sleep. So let's talk about how yeah. you formulated that. Yeah, so like, like I said, I mean, it started with the vitamin D3, added magnesium, added a little bit of melatonin. Uh, and then I started reading a lot about, and uh, I don't know if you know who Dan Party is, but he, he's a PhD you know, sleep guy. And I was, I was talking to him. Uh, he was a lot smarter about sleep than I was. And, uh, and we're talking about the appropriate dosage of melatonin. And if you yeah. give too much, you decrease receptors and therefore you're kind of making people deficient if they aren't taking it. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to back down on that, but um, I, you know, I had concerns that, it, it would, you know, people wouldn't sleep as well. Yeah. So, you know, what's the most, you know, what's the most beneficial thing to do is to make sure that they're actually making their own yeah. melatonin. And so the production pathway of melatonin is tryptophan, L-tryptophan, amino acid, and that becomes 5-hydroxytryptophan. And then with the help of vitamin D3 and magnesium, that becomes serotonin, and then serotonin becomes melatonin, right? So if you interrupt that pathway anywhere along the way, you don't get as much melatonin. And if you need a lot of melatonin, you can actually strip your own serotonin to make more melatonin, be serotonin deficient, which we know is associated with depression and lots of mood disorders. And then I told you about the kind of dictates when we're ready for sleep is how like is slowing down our neocortex and slowing down our neocortex uh, relies on GABA. That's the major inhibitory neurotransmitter. That's like, like when you're asleep, your eyes still work, your nose still works, your mouth still works, your ears still work. You're just not processing it. You're not, you're not paying attention to it, but that's why you can wake up and certain, you know, with certain stimuli going on that you aren't really aware of. Uh, it's because you you are like you are still processing all that, you're, or you are still sensing all that. You're just not processing it. Yeah. And so uh, I knew that you know if you don't start this sort of you know if you think of melatonin as the starter pistol, <clears throat> and you haven't done that well, um, you know, and I've given you a little bit of melatonin, I'd want to give you a tiny bit just to kind of get things going. But then I need your brain to make its own melatonin, and then the byproduct of that is one of the things. One of the byproducts of that is you're going to make more GABA. So I put GABA in there. GABA doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier super well, so the L-threonine helps sensitize yeah. the GABA receptors that you that are getting GABA, it, it, and that helps. And then the other thing we talked about was um, decreasing is stress. That, is that how theanine works? It sensitizes, or is it a GABA agonist? Does it help? Uh, so it, it's not a GABA agonist, but it, yeah. it binds to a re- it binds to a portion of the GABA receptor that doesn't stimulate the GABA receptor, but it makes it easier for GABA itself okay. to bind, and you get a higher effect of GABA. Okay. And so what GABA you do have, even if you're deficient, if you, you can get if you can get a little more L3 in it, and then the other thing is like GABA is working below the neck as well, right? Yeah, I mean you're, sure you're producing a ton of GABA in your gut, um, yeah. and that's slowing down lots of other things, right? 
Um, that's I've gamma. seen I've seen GABA supplementation, like pharma GABA, just straight supplementation, yeah. be a lifesaver for people with chronic anxiety, even right. though it's you know said not to cross the blood brain barrier. So we know it's having an impact. Yeah. And well, and the other thing is that uh, I think the 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 number of people who have permeable blood brain barriers is yeah, drastically under <laughs> underestimated Very true because if you've had a serious concussion there's a really good chance you have a permeable blood brain barrier and Sugar and balance, you your brain just fine yeah, yeah. Um, it's gonna it's gonna get in there a lot better at least and then the only other ingredient in there and again like none of that's meant to be a physiologic trick it's just meant yeah. to hey most people aren't spending three hours getting ready for bed so like let's kind of super concentrate everything and then let yeah. your brain do the work, but we're just kind of bringing, we're bringing the lumber to the construction yard. Yeah. Like we're not like, I'm not actually doing anything. You still have the, have the construction yeah. crew do its work. Um, and then the phosphatidylserine is just in there to decrease cortisol. Mm -hmm. That's been yeah. shown. It's been shown during uh, stressful exercise. So like super intense exercise where your yeah. cortisol builds up really quick. It decreases that by like, you know, 70%. Like you can get a yeah. huge decrease in that. Um, and th and again, those are this is just like a a, a pretty small amount of that, uh, just yeah. because some people are super sensitive to it, and it matters if you weigh 105 pounds or 305 pounds, like it matters. So, you know that um, th that's the most common thing I tell people to increase. If mm -hmm. like if you're like, well, the sleep supplement kind of helps me, but you know, I I get this or that, whatever. Like the most common thing is that you have a little excess stress hormone. Like go buy some phosphatidylserine on its own, yeah, and just supplement with it. Higher dose. And during periods like what do you this, think of ashwagandha. Uh, actually, so there there are a lot of herbs that yeah, so that, that can work tend too. To, that tend to be helpful. Uh, I mean, it, that's a, more of an, an adaptogen where we're trying to you know affect um, the adrenal system. And and a lot of a lot of herbs help with sleep. A lot of herbs help with adrenals. I'm not like I'm not an expert in that area. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't I've. I've gone just kind of like the MD route of like trying to just like put in what's deficient. Um, but you know, there, there are lots of things that help. I mean, and most people know, or most people are familiar with that, you know, like things like kava can help and, yeah. uh, you CBD. know, ashwagandha and CBD. And there's, there's lots of herbal things that those are doing something different than mm -hmm. just the physiologic norm. Um, yeah. And I don't know enough to say, well, this is how that works, and this is how that works. And I've just, I've deliberately not gotten myself into it, just because I don't want to try to be the jack of all trades. And if you, if, if people are really interested in herbal alternatives, then they can go, they can go down that route. But there are people who are way more expert in that than I am. And yeah, and that is what's interesting because you really, you don't have any herbs in in your product, so it's yeah. uh, really just using those those major compounds that that play a role with the brain. Which is interesting too, because there are some people have certain sensitivities to herbs, so uh, yeah. kind of helps remove that as well. And uh, what kind of results are you seeing with it? I mean, I, I think it's it, it's uh, it's pretty binary. If you if you take it and you don't notice anything, yeah, uh, you're probably not going to notice anything. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if very few people will say I, I didn't I didn't notice anything right away, but after a couple of weeks, it really made a big difference. I've heard that a very, very few times. Um, but I can tell you like when I go to when I go to trade shows and I give away a free sample, it's like crack in the eighties, man. Like everybody comes <laughs> back the next day and buys a box. Yeah. Um, and it I'd say it's about I'd say about eighty five percent of the people who take it are like, 
wow, that was amazing. Like mm. I, that's the best sleep I've had. And I can't tell you how long. And they just wanted, they wanted to go. And, and because it's, because it's just supplemental to food. I mean, by definition, yeah. what supplement means, <clears throat> I mean, you, you can take it forever. And if you, if you feel like it makes a big difference, like I, I've never had any problems sleeping. I just, I, I elected to, I selected two professions that didn't value sleep. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. yeah, at some yeah. point I started valuing yeah. it. Navy SEALs and medical doctors for this yeah. two most sleep deprived professions. Yep. And so, uh, I, I never had any difficulty sleeping, but I noticed like when, like, uh, so Rob Wolf is a partner in the, in the company yeah. and, uh, and you know, he and I, you know, launched this whole thing together and he was over at my house one night and, uh, we were doing a lecture, like we were both lecturing at some place the next day. And he's like, Hey man, are you gonna, are you taking your, and there was sleep cocktail at the time. That was the original name of this. Are you taking your sleep cocktail tonight? And I'm like, ah, oh, man, like I've ran out of that stuff. <laughs> like I, I own the company, but I run out, of, I ran out of, I had two houses and I just wasn't, I just didn't stock up one house. I'm like, I ran out of that a couple of months ago. And he's like, I got an extra one. I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. And he's like, are you sure? And he's like, Tim. I'm like, all right, I'll try it or I'll do it. And then the next morning I woke up, I'm like, oh man, what was I thinking? Like I sleep so much better with this. And I hear that from a lot of people. They're like, I, I feel like I sleep fine, but when I take it, I'm like, man, I really slept better. Yeah. And that's subjective. So I don't know, like I don't have, you know, clinical trials to say that it's measurable, measurably different if you sleep well uh, already. But I can just say that anecdotally, uh, that's what yeah. most people's experience are. If it works for you, it works for you, whether you sleep well or not. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. You know. Well, I love it. And uh, for those of you guys that are interested, I think it's a great formula. I would definitely recommend trying it out. Like you said, I mean, try it out for 30 days and see if you notice an improvement. Um, and you can find out, we'll have a link in the show notes. So check that out with a discount with it. And uh, yeah, Dr. Parsley has been a great interview. And yeah. I just want to take a moment, just acknowledge um, everything that you're doing, your commitment to helping people sleep better and live better. And uh, looking forward, I'm going to check out your book as well. It's Sleep to Win, right? Sleep to Win? Yeah, Sleep to Win. Yep. Absolutely. And so I really think that um, prioritizing our sleep may be the single most valuable thing we can do to help improve our health. So uh, definitely take advantage of that. And any, any last words of inspiration for our audience? Uh, so here, sleep, sleep is the best performance enhancing tool you have. Yeah. There's nothing that you, there, there's not a single goal you can set for yourself that optimal sleep won't help you achieve. So it doesn't matter if it's physical or mental, emotional, like it doesn't matter. Whatever you want to be better at, you get better at it while you're sleeping. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And for those of you guys that are listening, remember, you're more valuable than you think. So take action steps today to prioritize your health, prioritize your sleep. And uh, take back control of your life and your health. And if you do that, I know that uh, great things will happen. So be blessed, everybody. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.